I want to begin this morning with a question. How many of you have ever been lost before? I mean really lost. Not lost your mommy in the grocery store lost, but in the middle of nowhere with no hope of finding your way home lost. I mean really lost. It's a terrifying feeling, isn't it? I remember my senior year of high school, I had the privilege to go to Italy with some of my classmates for a senior trip. And while in Rome, a friend of mine named Jay and I decided we wanted to try and meet up with some students that we had bumped into that day. So we coordinated a rendezvous with said students at their hotel, which happened to be about a 20-minute bus ride from ours. However, since said meeting was not endorsed by our faculty chaperones, the meeting needed to happen in the middle of the night, if you catch my drift. So we snuck out, and somehow we made it to our destination. I'm still not exactly sure how we made it, but we did. And the meeting went fine, but eventually we decided it was time to return home. So, uh, this is where our brilliant plan went south, uh, because unfortunately we were not so lucky on our return trip, and we got crazy lost in the middle of nowhere in a foreign city. And let me tell you, the people that hang out on the streets at this time of night are not the type of people you want to bring home to meet mama. On top of that, they were not too keen on practicing their English skills with two young American boys. I think it goes without saying that Jay and I were scared. Uh, now, of course, as any 17-year-old boy would, we pretended like we weren't, but deep down we were terrified. And we were scared because we were lost with no hope whatsoever of finding our way home. We were completely powerless to save ourselves. Now, by God's grace, we somehow stumbled upon a man who was sober and safe and bilingual. And this man literally walked us to the bus stop and then gave us detailed instructions on exactly where we needed to get off of the bus in order to get back to our hotel. And as a result of this man and his intervention, I'm standing here today. You see, this man did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He found us in our lostness, and he got us home. We're continuing in our sermon series this morning called Love Thy Neighbor. And we come to part three in our series, which I've titled Loving the Lost. Loving the Lost. And I want to begin by recognizing the non-Christians that are with us, those of you who are still wrestling with the claims of Christ. First and foremost, I want to say once again, I'm so glad that you're here. You have no idea how glad I am that you are here and that you are choosing to journey with us. And I want to address you up front because this text and therefore this sermon might be offensive to you. You see, it's not a politically correct sermon, the bluntness by which Jesus speaks about Christians and non-Christians, the lost and the found, might be upsetting to you. 
But within that, I hope that within the things that are said that you will feel a deep love from us, from me, to you. That you would feel our sincere longing for you to experience and enjoy this gift that we've been given and so desperately want to share with you. Our desire for you to know Christ and to experience the riches of His grace and His love and His mercy towards you, that you would be found. And so in the midst of what might be offensive, I hope that you feel something that is loving and not condemning and judgmental. Now before we go any further, when we are studying parables, we must be careful to rightly identify the characters in the story. So as we begin to unpack this parable of Jesus in Luke 15, we must first define who the lost are, the main character in the story. And in a moment, we're going to look at the first seven verses of Luke 15. But in order to best define this word lost, I want to fast forward a few verses to the parable of the prodigal son, a passage that we won't unpack this morning, but in many ways mirrors our text. In Luke 15, verse 24, the father in the parable of the prodigal son says this. He says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, the parallel of lostness is deadness. Paul reiterates this idea in Ephesians 2.5. He says, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. The Bible teaches that the lost are the living dead, the spiritually dead, those who are unresponsive to God and His Word. And brothers and sisters, I think this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Christ Central Church, the reason we included this sermon in this series is because your neighbor is lost. Before we started this church two and a half years ago, we did a demographic study of downtown Durham, a two-mile radius from the city center. And what the study showed is that based on the 2010 census data, 30% of downtown Durham's residents claim to be not at all involved with their faith. And another 30% claim to be very minimally involved with their faith. Now, I imagine that those numbers have actually risen since 2010. But nonetheless, at least 60% of your neighbors have little to no relationship with God. Your neighbors are lost. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if we are called by God to love our neighbor, then we must evangelize. Yes, I said it. That dirty word that we hate to say we must evangelize. Now we're going to unpack this in a bit more detail, but I just want to lay this summary before you before we dive into the text. And here's the summary that I want us to, to work from. God has called us, the greatest commandment, to love Him and to love our neighbor. And our neighbor is lost, does not know Christ, is dead in his or her sin. Therefore, in the greatest act of love that we can muster so that our neighbor might be found, we must evangelize. We must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ contained in His holy, inspired Word, the Word of God. 
Brothers and sisters, it's from there that I want to dive into our text this morning. We've made plain that in order to love our neighbor, we must evangelize. And our text this morning highlights three things. It highlights the primacy of evangelism, the method of evangelism, and the motive of evangelism. The primacy, the method, and the motive. So I ask that you would now stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. A long introduction, but I think necessary. Here is God's Word, Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us, that you would speak to us through your word, that you might draw us to yourself and remind us of this beautiful truth that is laid before us in this text. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we dive into our text this morning, we must first examine the context into which it was written. Jesus always tells parables with an intended audience in mind and with an, with an intended message to be delivered, often a very weighty message as we see here. So look again with me at verses 1 and 2 as we seek to wrap our minds around both the intended audience and the intended message. Verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. As Daniel mentioned last week, we have to recognize that in this cultural context, to table with someone to invite someone into your home to dine with you was a huge deal. It was not uncommon for people to serve food to strangers and acquaintances, but you would never eat with someone. You'd never sit and dine with someone that you didn't know well and think very highly of. One commentator says, To invite a man to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, of trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life. And the Pharisees, they were all up in arms because Jesus was sharing a table. He was sharing life with the scum of the earth, with tax collectors and sinners. And so we can quickly, quickly see that Jesus' intended audience here is the Pharisees. And his intended message is, hey Pharisees, you missing the point. You are missing the point the point. But what is the point that the Pharisees are missing? And here's where we get into the primacy of evangelism. 
Think about what you know from scriptures about what Pharisees spent most of their time doing. They spent most of their time in the temple, in the synagogue, managing their flock, pun intended. They in many ways would do this. They would, they would care for God's people through performing sacrifices on their behalf, through teaching God's Word, the Old Testament, through correcting those who had wandered. To use the language of the parable, they focused on the 99, right? So Jesus tells them this story with the hopes of correcting this way of doing ministry. And the way that he makes his point here is absolutely brilliant. Look at verse 3. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now everyone in the crowd would immediately have thought, Wait a minute, Jesus. That's crazy. You're telling me that as a shepherd, when one dumb little sheep wanders off, you think that the best plan of action is to leave the 99 unattended to go after that one stupid sheep. So immediately the hearers of the parable would have been reeling and they would have been confused, wondering why would a shepherd do something crazy like that? And then Jesus gives them the answer, verses 5 and 6. And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Why would a shepherd do something so silly and leave the 99? The answer is because finding the one is the good stuff. That's where the real joy is. Church, do you hear the subtle but massively important point that Jesus is making to the Pharisees? He's saying that you have gotten too caught up in good things and therefore forsaken the best thing. You have focused too much on caring for the 99, which is good, but has come at the expense of finding the one which is great. Jesus is making a massive declaration here about the character and identity of the church. Jesus is saying the church is first and foremost a, rec a rescue agency, not a character development center. Did you hear that? The church is a rescue agency first and foremost, not a character development center. Now, don't get me wrong, the redemption that Christ purchased on the cross is far bigger than the souls of men and women. As the famous hymn states, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Jesus came to redeem everything that was broken in the fall, everything that was lost, all of creation, that is true. However, the scripture is abundantly clear that at the heart of, the focal point of the work of Christ is the cross. And on the cross, Christ defeated sin and death and purchased back the lost souls of men and women. And church, this is what makes us unique, isn't it? We are not a social justice organization that simply exists to love people. 
We are the church of Jesus Christ, the stewards of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. There are countless organizations throughout this wonderful city that, if we are honest, do a far better job of loving people than we do. And praise God for them. Seriously, praise God for them. But that's not our primary job. Our primary job is, as, is to, like Jesus, seek and save the lost. To, by God's grace, through the power of His Spirit, bring the dead to life. And as we allow this to settle in, I have to confess that I fear that we, Christ Central, may be falling into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into. That we are focusing too much on good things at the expense of the great thing. That we have gotten too caught up in the 99 at the expense of the 1. Christ Central, we have experienced unbelievable growth over the past two and a half years, and praise God for that. It's a really good thing. It really is. But if I'm honest, it does not excite me one bit for us to see another 150 Christians find their way into this building. I don't get out of bed for that. If I may be so bold, I don't think I even want to be a part of that church. You know what, you know what kind of church I want to be a part of? You may not care, but I'm going to tell you anyway. This is the kind of church I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a church that has to call the city because we run out of water because we're, we're doing so many adult baptisms. A church that services are being disrupted all the time on Sunday morning because we're having redemption celebrations, welcoming new members into God's family. Because church, that's the good stuff. Verse 7, that's what the angels get geeked out about. They don't throw parties in heaven because another 50 Christians showed up at Christ Central. They throw parties in heaven when one lost sheep is found. That's the primacy of evangelism that our text makes plain. Caring for the 99, that's, that's all well and good, but our most important job is to bring lost sheep home. And if you've ever been a part of leading someone to Christ, you can affirm with me, that's where the joy is. That's the good stuff. So that's the primacy of evangelism. Let's look now at the method of evangelism. What's the method of evangelism that we see here? Now, I'm not going to go into an extensive discussion of, of all the dynamics of how we do evangelism. There's some great books on that subject, and we as a church should probably do a class at some point. But I do want to focus a little on what the text reveals about the methodology of how we are to do evangelism. So look again with me at the text, verse 4. The first thing that we see is that we must seek them out. Look at verse 4 again. What man of you... Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost. So the first bit of methodology that we see here is that the shepherd leaves the found to go seek out the lost. Now a little bit of zoology here. Apparently, lost sheep don't seek out their shepherd. 
Apparently, according to zoologists, it is very common for a lost sheep to once it realizes that it is lost to lay down and never get back up. It must be sought out. And the application is simple for us, church, isn't it? Yet often untried. We must seek out those who do not know Christ. They are not seeking us. We must go where they are and engage in the things that they are doing. Daniel does CrossFit. I like to hang out on my street in my neighborhood where there's constantly people spending time. Some people start book clubs. Some people create supper clubs or biking clubs or play groups or study groups. There's a wealth of ways that we can do this. We need to be creative. I don't care how you do it, but we need to be seeking out people, going out and finding and engaging with people that do not know Christ. We are to leave the 99. Brothers and sisters, if all of your friends are in this room right now, you've got a problem. We at Christ Central intentionally limit the number of evenings that we have church activities primarily for this purpose. We want to create space for you to cultivate relationships with non-Christians. We don't want you to be here every day. There will never be rejoicing over the one if we don't go look for him or her. So very practical challenge that I want to put before you that was given to me a long time ago. We need to make it our goal to be one of the first three people that a non-Christian calls when life happens. Did you hear that? We should be developing deep enough relationships that when tragedy strikes, and it always does, we are one of the first three people to get a call. That's what I think it looks like to seek out the one. It's cultivating those kinds of relationships with people that don't know Christ. Secondly, in terms of methodology, the text says that we are to carry them home. Look at verse 5. And when he has found it, the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Once again, a little understanding of sheep is critical here. As I mentioned before, Real-life shepherds affirm that a lost sheep will often lie down and refuse to get up. Hence the laying on of his shoulders. You see, the sheep is so distraught that it refuses to, it is unable to walk home. Therefore, it becomes the burden of the shepherd to carry the sheep home. And we don't know how long that journey was, but I can imagine that hiking through the woods with a sheep on your shoulder is not very pleasant. But what's fascinating is that the text says the shepherd lays the sheep on his shoulder rejoicing. He delights in the burden. And the application here is glaring. The process of seeking and saving the lost is costly. Now, walking around downtown Durham handing out gospel tracts, that's not very costly, but carrying someone home, that sacrificial investment in someone else's life, that is costly. What does that look like? I think it looks like being willing to pour ourselves out in relationship. It looks like what Daniel talked about 
last week. It's hospitality. It's having people in your home, doing life together. It looks like caring deeply for those people, freely giving of your time and your resources with your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, like you would your very own family. And what's important, as the text reveals, is we do this with joy. We delight in the sacrifice. Why? Well, because of the first point that was made. We know that that's the good stuff. We know that the greatest joy comes from seeing the lost come home. Brothers and sisters, are you making sacrifices in your life, sacrifices of your time, of yourself, of your resources, with the goal of seeing the lost be found? Now lastly, in terms of methodology, we, we see that evangelism is done with God's Word and by His Spirit. Now, this is a topical sermon, which means I have the freedom to leave the text and grab hold of greater biblical principles that permeate all of Scripture. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So I want to make a point, and then I'm going to defend it from Scripture. And the point is that when Scripture speaks of evangelism, it is talking about proclaiming the Word of God to people. 1 Peter 1, verse 23 and following says, Since you have been born again, this idea of being brought from dead to life, from lost to found, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And then Peter defines that seed, the seed being through the living and abiding Word of God. And then Peter quotes Isaiah, says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter finishes by making it plain. He says, And this word is the good news preached to you. Hear me now, brothers and sisters. It's not that our evangelism is ever void of love. It's not separated from deed, if you will. We know that, and we saw that clearly last week in the sermon that was preached. But the point is that evangelism does not happen apart from the proclamation of the living and abiding Word of God. Let me push this a little further. The lost are never found apart from the truth of God's Word. One cannot be simply loved into being found. Human witness in, in terms of proclaiming the Word of God is indispensable in the divine miracle of regeneration, of the lost being found. God chooses to use us. He most certainly could have asked one of the trees outside to walk in here and proclaim to us His Word. He could have done that. But instead, He chooses to use you and I. We are the message bearers. What great dignity is bestowed upon us in the fact that God chooses to use us to bring the message of Christ crucified. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must unashamedly preach the word if the lost are to be found. 
And lastly, in terms of methodology, our evangelism is done in the power of the Spirit. Evangelism always happens through God's power, through the power of the Spirit. One of the bizarre things about evangelism is that by calling us to do evangelism, God is calling us to do the impossible. He's calling us to raise the dead. And I don't know about you, but I have not yet figured out how to do that. I don't know how to bring dead people back to life. But the Great Commission is so helpful here. Matthew 28 says, where God calls us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Again, here we see the impossible task laid before us. And yet, Jesus sandwiches this command within the means, the way that the impossible becomes possible. He surrounds the command with the how. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's Jesus saying here? He says the task is impossible for you. Yes, it is. But nothing is impossible for me. And guess what? I'm coming with you. I'm coming with you and I will accomplish this impossible task for you. I will go before you and behind you and I will make this impossible thing become possible. I will bring the dead to life. The beautiful text that highlights this concept, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. We need to go and plant the seeds of the Word of God. We need to water that Word with our love and hospitality, and we need to trust that God is going to be the one to cause the growth. Which brings us to our third and final point this morning, the motive for evangelism. And here again, we need to return to the context and to the characters of this parable. Again, Jesus is primarily talking to the Pharisees, and what we might miss at first glance is that Jesus is setting them up here in order to make an even greater point. He baits them into thinking that they are to identify with the shepherd in order to drop the bomb on them here at the end. Look again at verse 3. What man of you having a hundred sheep? He begins, he calls them the shepherd in verse 3, the Pharisees. And this would have been an easy identification for them, seeing as how Moses was a shepherd and how kings in Ezekiel referred to as shepherd and even God himself was referred to as a shepherd in Psalm 23. The Pharisees saw themselves as the shepherds of God's flock. But then Jesus flips it on them in verse 7 and he makes a profound point that he will further unpack in the, prodigal of the, the parable of the prodigal son. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, Jesus is introducing another character here, a fictional character, but a character that he most intends the Pharisees to identify with. The character is the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is saying, you actually aren't a shepherd because you've missed the most fundamental and necessary truth to be, to, 
that is required to be one of mine. You miss that the fact that you need to repent. You see, the Pharisees, they are the self-righteous. They are those who see no need for a Savior, those who are blind to their lostness. And Jesus is saying, I've got nothing for you. I only work with losers. And there's this, there's this hidden jewel right here that I'm sure the Pharisees caught, and I'm sure they didn't like it. You see, again, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question in verse 4, but the question assumes the wrong answer, doesn't it? He says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Like I mentioned before, it's a loaded question that is weighted towards the wrong answer. It's actually a terrible idea for the shepherd to leave the 99 and go after the one. Why? Because the result will then be 99 lost sheep and only one found sheep. And Jesus says, bingo. That's exactly the point. I only work with losers. I raise the dead and only the dead. One commentator says, Jesus rejoices more over the last, the least, the little, than over all the winners in the world. You see, the Pharisees, they thought they were winners. They were the cream of the crop. And yet Jesus is saying that all is required of us in order to be His is our lostness. And the lost, the lost sheep, they bring nothing to the table, right, except they, their own lostness. The lost sheep does not summon the shepherd. He does not leave a trail of breadcrumbs so the shepherd will know where to find him. He's not even willing to walk home after he's been fouled. The shepherd has to carry him the whole way home. This is a huge gospel revelation. Jesus is saying that his specialty, his forte, is lostness, is the ones that got away. And Jesus is more than willing to leave the 99 so that they might get lost in order that they might actually be found. Did you hear that? Jesus is willing to leave the 99 so that they might get lost in order that they might actually be found in Him. Brothers and sisters, we are the lost sheep. We bring nothing to the table except our own lostness. And Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, has sought us out and found us. And the imagery here is so beautiful, isn't it? He carried us home on His shoulders when He bore the weight of our sin on His shoulders on the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the saltiness of the Gospel. What, what is salt? Salt is something that makes Food, all food tastes better. It brings the flavor out. In the section immediately before our text, it says this, Salt is good, but if it has lost its taste, how shall it be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Brothers and sisters, if we forget the irony of the gospel that we who were once lost dumb sheep have now been found and made into shepherds by God's grace and in His strength. If we forget that reality, we become useless. Church, I wonder if we don't see more adult baptisms here at Christ Central because we, like the Pharisees, have lost our saltiness. We've forgotten what makes the gospel 
so good. Brothers and sisters, our motivation for evangelism lies in the realization of our own lostness and the gracious finding of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. It is this realization of the priceless gift that we've been given, that we didn't deserve, that motivates us to go out to the highways and the hedges and share this gift with others, to carry them home. And if we forget that, our motivation disappears and our salt loses its flavor and we become no good, not even for the manure pile. Church, if we get excited and rest in our growth, Lord, help us. I'm not against more Christians hearing the good news week in and week out, but that's not what I wake up for. That's not what excites me this morning. You know what excites me? It's that this city, the city of Durham, bowing the knee and worshiping the one true God. It's the people of this city being found. I will never forget that night that I got lost in Rome in the middle of the night and a stranger brought me home. Church, might we be that stranger that leaves the 99 to search the wilderness of Durham for the one so that we might, by God's grace, bring him or her home. Amen? Let's pray.